Hello and welcome to the CSF Rheumatology Author Interview Podcast for this month. My name is Peter Nash from the Griffith University in Brisbane. And today we're very fortunate to talk to one of the world's most eminent infectious diseases physicians, Professor Kevin Winthrop from the Oregon Health Science University. Welcome, Kevin, and many thanks for your time. I appreciate it's the middle of your afternoon over there. And we hope you're keeping well with all this uh, COVID and all the fires in uh, Oregon. So um, I just wonder before we start, if you could tell the audience um, a little bit about yourself and how you got into what you got into and where you're working and what you're researching on. Sure, you bet. Thanks, Peter, for having me. Um, as you mentioned, I'm in Portland, Oregon. I'm a professor here of infectious diseases and epidemiology in the School of Medicine and School of Public Health at Oregon Health Science University. Uh, I've been here as of today, 15 years. I can't believe it. Um, I started when I was like five years old, uh, obviously. So uh, I, I, God, I got into this whole bit of working with you guys uh, about 20 years ago um, when I was a young, younger um, CDC uh, official. I was a uh, a staff epidemiologist at the U.S. Uh, CDC Center for Disease Control and Prevention, uh, which has unfortunately been in the news a lot lately. <laughs> the, the, my it's remaining friends there. Well, we use criticism of the CDC. Yeah, my my remaining buddies there. I, I feel bad for they're they're they've been kind of pushed aside by uh, a lot of people above them, the administration, namely. But uh, anyway. All that aside, uh, I, I worked there, I was a TB guy and, you know, it was pretty random, but Joseph Smolin uh, called CDC and said, hey, we, you know, we, we need someone to help us with this TB issue in Europe around anti-TNF drugs. And he had had an old contact there who turned out supervisor at the time. And uh, I had just done an outbreak uh, of infliximab-associated TB throughout California and kind of figured out, you know, what the problem was. And so I'd been working on this issue. And so my supervisor uh, said, yeah, you should, you should go to Europe to this conference and get involved. So that, that kind of uh, opened the window. And I, I've been working uh, on those issues with, with you guys ever since. And, of course, after TNF blockers, uh, they all came out. And then there was the, the new mechanism of action, X, Y, and Z. And so it's been a continuous flood of uh, biologics and now small molecular therapies who all have kind of their own uh, infection uh, risk or profile somewhat similar in some cases sometimes different in others and I, I've enjoyed studying all those issues that they as they've come up the last couple decades. Fantastic so today we're talking about your paper recently published in Anthropomatic Diseases which is Infections in Barosintinib Clinical Trials for Patients with Active RA. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, uh, the objective of the study and the kind of methods that you put together to analyze this particular question? Sure, you, you bet. This was, uh, a, this was a, uh, a study long, long in coming. I mean, I feel like we worked on this for a couple of years and this was really uh, an effort to summarize the infectious disease experience in the clinical trial program uh, in RA for baricitinib. So this was getting, uh, I think, eight phase, uh, one, two, or three studies and one long-term extension um, to, to one of those studies. And so all of that data combined over uh, a number of years um, 
can't remember, but almost had 8,000 person years of exposure, I think. And uh, so it was a summary of that data, looking at infectious disease risk by dose, uh, and then types of uh, infections occurring, particularly the opportunistic infections, uh, describing them, their incidence and trying to compare it to uh, the comparative regimens where possible in some of those studies. So, so it was really an integrated uh, safety assessment, I think, you know, for, um, for baricitinib in our program for, for infection. So it's about, as you say, 3,500 patients, nearly 8,000 patient years, mean about 2.6 years, maximum six years. Can you tell us, just for those who aren't clear, Barry's Jack 1-2, um, what the profile of Barry is in the US, given the crazy FDA's two milligram decision? And then we're going to talk about what you actually found. Yeah, Barry is Jack 1, Jack 2 primarily. Uh, you know, some of the other uh, drugs have different spectrums of activity. TOF is more like Jack 1, 2, and 3. And um, Barry also has some activity at TIC2. I mean, people don't usually talk about that, but it has pretty um, low IC50 values in the enzymatic assay when you look at those things. Uh, so there is some TIC2 activity for Barry as well. Um, as you know, it's really more, more Jack 1 specific, and UPA is more Jack 1 specific, although also has some activity at Jack 2. So there's some cross, uh, crossover between all these molecules, particularly in um, higher doses. So, and as you mentioned, we, we only have the two milligram dose here for Barry. I, I assume in Australia, you guys are, you probably use both doses there. I don't know. Yeah, the four is used almost universally here, unless you're yeah. over 70 renal impairment, then we use the two. So let's yeah. um, talk a little bit about uh, the results and, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll, we'll take it from there. When you looked at what we published here, we, we showed overall across the, the trials, if you just looked at an all exposure group of Barry, anyone in what, who was on Barry, you know, the rate of serious infection was kind of that sweet spot we see with, with uh, all the JAK trials and uh, really all the biologic trials around three you know, three per hundred patient years. I think that was our um, our number. And, you know, when you looked at the two doses, they were pretty similar. They weren't statistically different uh, in the placebo controlled period. In fact, the rate was similar to placebo is three versus I think 4.2 for placebo. Um, you know, of course that's short term, that's only through 24 weeks. But when you looked at beyond that between uh, two and four, of course, there's no placebo patients after that time period. But when you look between two and four, again, pretty similar, although maybe some dose-dependent increase, uh, a hint there where the, the rate with Barry 4.8 with the four milligram dose and 3.3 with the two milligram dose. So maybe some different there, uh, but but not uh, statistically significant. I, and I wouldn't be surprised if there was some difference there because four is more efficacious than two. So I, I would expect there to be a bit more of a signal with four compared to two. But those rates are right in the ballpark. And in terms of the types of infections, it was the usual stuff you see in RA, you know, pneumonia, skin and soft tissue infections, UTIs, et cetera. And with the TNFs, it seems that serious infection like skin and soft tissue drops off over time. You didn't get a hint of that in this study? Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting idea. Um, yeah, sure. I mean, the LTE experiences in all these studies, you do see either fairly stable rates, but you always see them slightly decline. And so they, these rates also uh, decline slightly with time, which is what we'd expect. So, um, okay. you know, in terms of risk factors for SIEs, I mean, it's kind of the same serious infection risk factors as we see elsewhere. Um, I thought the coolest part of the data, the modeling, though, is that we looked at 
BMI not in one direction. We looked at you know whether you're underweight or overweight, and it, it turns out both are risk factors relative to being being normal. Um, so so that was interesting. We don't usually look at it that way, but that makes sense to me. And then of course, concomitant glucocorticoids was a risk factor for serious infections. No big surprise there. Uh, in addition to age, but with steroids, any cutoff or all doses are not good. Well, you know, we, we found a similar risk for, you know, people under five milligrams per day, as well as between five and 10, it was about the same. Um, I would suspect if you had a bigger, bigger trial, more power, you'd see a higher I think, uh, risk estimate for, but, but we didn't see one. I think there's this impression that five or less is safe, but really from an infection point of view, I'm not sure that's really true. I agree. You know, Mike George and I, Jeff Curtis, and a number of other people just published a, a study in Annals of Internal Medicine this week looking looking at that. Um, you, you could grab it and look at it, but it was uh, where we looked at even lower doses of steroids and we controlled for disease activity um, in various ways, including, you know, uh, you know your, your usual measures of disease activity for RA, and we were able to show that increased risk as well. So I, I agree. Good on you. Tell us a bit about TB, and then we'll talk about Zoster. I don't think there was a surprise to TB either. Uh, it occurred. Uh, I think all the I think all the the cases were in the four milligram group, but of course most of the program was in the four milligram group. So I don't think we could really comment on a risk difference according to dose. Uh, the cases occurred in endemic areas for TB, and they occurred at rates between you know three and five. Uh, or slightly higher times above the background population, which is really similar to what we saw with TOFA and their RA program. Certainly similar to what we see with the TNF blockers in population-based studies from those places in the world. So I, I wasn't surprised by this. Um, I think there were 11 cases, if I remember right. But uh, you know, alongside that, there was a nice screening uh, algorithm put in place. It was similar to what we've done in a number of programs for a number of agents. And uh, the people that were found to have latent TB and treated uh, did not reactivate. Uh, they tolerated their therapy, uh, you know, and they were able to go into the program. Uh, if I recall right, I think they had to be on um, latent TB prophylaxis for a month before they could start the study drug. So, you know, people would start Barry or placebo at that point. And they had, of course, finished out their LTBI treatment. And they, they seemed to tolerate INH. Uh, and buried just fine together. We, we looked at that in a separate publication and rates of hepatotoxicity were really low. So, so it proved uh, or you know, suggested that, hey, you, you can do this how we did it with TOFA and how we do it with other drugs, screen people effectively and, and prevent TB. So. Okay, so we've got to do the normal screening. Can you just remind me, wasn't there a New England paper of a sort of a rifampicin derivative and three months is enough instead of nine months of isoniazid? And some of the patients with uh, Barry in this trial, they were actually treated with rifampin-based uh, regimens. So not all of them were on INH, as opposed to uh, uh, where we we published that data a few years ago. Those folks on INH because rifampin interacts with TOPA. So rifampin-based regimens, which are short alternative for, for these folks in the setting. And, and the drug you're talking about is rifapentine. It's long-acting rifampicin. So, uh, you know, once weekly INH and rifapentine for 12 weeks is, is really the preferred regimen. It's the most straightforward, uh, probably the most efficacious, uh, and it's only 12 weeks long. So that, that's what I'd go for if you, if you can do it.
Yeah, we have to we have to get my head around that. It's a new way to go. So tell us a bit about Zoster, which um, we work in the Asia Pacific is the biggest issue of all. Yeah, I mean, nothing uh, surprising necessarily with Zoster, uh, except for the multivariate analysis of risk factors. We didn't see that steroids added risk. So that was surprising to me, but that may just be because we have a small, too small study or something, because steroids are undoubtedly a risk factor for zoster. Uh, and that's been shown in dozens of publications. Uh, in terms of the rates of zoster, sure, they were elevated compared to placebo. There seemed to be some uh, suggestion of a dose dependence. You know, the rates were higher with four as compared to two. Uh, they were certainly higher in your part of the world, particularly um, Asia. And uh, again, this was driven by uh, highest rates being in Japan. So very similar to what we saw with tofacidinib and upacidinib, uh, where, where there's a lot of that data. And again, nobody really understands this Asian signal in terms of why these folks get more zoster or why they have more zoster captured. Uh, when they're taking JAK inhibitors. So, so I think the, the zoster signal here was very similar to what we've seen with the other drugs, despite being slight, slightly different in terms of their kinase selectivity that we, you know, we spoke of earlier in the, in the podcast. Um, I guess the other thing to, to note is that uh, similar to the other programs, you know, these were mostly monodermatomal. A few of them were you know, multidermatomal, but there's no uh, invasive disease really. And it's, it's uh, generally easily treatable with an antiviral and stopping the jack. And so same, same kind of profile we've seen with the other agents and probably what you've seen in clinical practice. It certainly speaks to the need for uh, vaccination uh, and prevention. We, you know, we're, we're starting a big trial looking at Shingrix in a setting. Um, there's a couple other studies. Um, actually, we're, we're starting several studies looking at Shingrix in the jack inhibitor set, setting. Uh, with several partners. And so I, I think this is, you know, in the next year, a year and a half, we're going to have a lot better idea how well that vaccine works and, and optimal ways to give it, you know, in relation to DMARD use, because I think those are big. Yeah, it's sad we're stuck with the Zostavax here and it comes at the worst time. The patient's flaring, need to go and have Jack, and you've got to say two or three weeks off before we can, you know, so it's quite tricky here. Yeah, that that is trickier where... Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Now, it's interesting. I mean, I, I would still use Zostavax. I mean, it certainly, I think, provides some benefit. Uh, it's probably just much shorter term than the Shingrix. Um, so it would be a nice bridge to use it for the next year until maybe you have Shingrix uh, available. Um, but the live aspect to it is is an issue, as you mentioned. So uh, yeah, try to try to do it when they're not flaring and they need to start their jack. I guess that's it. You know, I'll tell you, Jeff Curtis and I, we just, it's not published yet, but I mean, we, we showed that uh, you can use Zostavax in patients on TNF blockers without any problem at all. So, you know, that's probably the time to vaccinate them while they're on their TNF blocker. The other thing was interesting, in the TOFA studies you published, if you eliminated methotrexate and steroids, the Zoster risk came all the way back down to baseline but you didn't show that with Barry. Is that just a quirk of the numbers? Yeah, uh, good observation. I, I think it was a quirk. I mean, in fact, with the TOFA data, when we got more person years and more data, uh, we were able to show that it actually really wasn't influencing as much at all uh, as well. So I think most of the influence that we're seeing was with the concomitant steroid. Um, so I, I think you raise a, an interesting question. I mean, maybe there's more... Um, 
you know, interaction going on with steroids in TOFA than there are with steroids in berry. I, I don't know. I mean, in the SIE data, we, we see something similar, but in the HZ or the herpes zoster data, of course, we saw something different. So that, that's an open question. I, I don't know why that would be other than it's probably a fluke or it's, you know, we just don't have large enough data sets, but, but interesting to, to follow that up, particularly as we, we get more uh, person years exposure accrued, we should reanalyze that. And you're, um, you're studying it now, but do you get the impression Shingrix flares RA or has no real effect on RA? Well, I can tell you my personal experience is, is very small and um, one person flared <laughs> out, of, out of maybe, you know, a couple dozen. So I, you know, I don't know. I mean, their flare rate seemed to be well expected. Of course, there was no control group. They didn't really, you know, it, it was, it was an observational study. It wasn't a rigorous, you know, uh, case finding exercise for flares. So I don't know, maybe they missed some flares, but from what they reported, it was encouraging and it didn't look like there was more flares than, than what one would expect. Yeah. Very very few people have to change treatment. Yeah, that's true. Any um, future developments in this program? Should we should we wait for registry data now? Have you, have you done enough of this uh, um, looking at the long-term extension? What do you, where's the future for, for uh, Barry and where's the future for the two doses as far as safety is concerned? Yeah, I mean, I, I think twofold, two, two answers. I mean, one is obviously the VTE issue, which we're not talking about today. That That's uh, something that needs further evaluation. Of course, that's ongoing. And that plays a lot into the two doses. I think from an infection standpoint, um, you know, I, I, I see a benefit risk that's favorable for the higher dose with regards to infection. Um, you know, it's really, you know, it, you know the, the four could be used in people who need it certainly and the the two could be used in, in people who have um don't not you know not bio ir times five and things like that and or you know they lack risk factors i mean certainly older people i think you've got to be uh, a little more conservative with in terms of your dosing not just with barry but just with any of your drugs um uh you know that's been shown with tofa 10 versus five and a lot of these other uh drugs that, you know, higher doses, particularly in elderly people are, are riskier. Uh, the risk elevation in elderly people is really, you know, the relative risk is really no different. I mean, if, if the increased risk tends to be the same whether you're 35 or 75, it's just your absolute risk, of course, is a lot higher. So about, I think, you know, I, I guess to me, I, obviously shingles uh, prevention is, is really of utmost importance to Jack's uh, long-term, you know, we have a little hepatitis B data we didn't talk today, but that looked pretty favorable with Barry. I mean, we were able to show that Barry does react to B, which I expected, but also that uh, you can walk people closely and, and use Barry, even if they have a history of HBV exposure. And of course, use antivirals if you need to. So, so I think that was uh, encouraging. So, I mean, in terms of the future, sure, registry data, it's always important, or, or population-based data. I think we should probably look a little more at... Um, the elderly, uh, and, and then also at shingles prevention. Those would be the two, two things on my mind. I forgot, I forgot to ask you about other viruses. Some of my patients complain of herpes simplex being an issue on all jacks, not just this jack. And should we be extra cautious with HPV yeah. and use Gardasil in our patients? Yeah, those are good questions. I mean, 
uh, I should have said that because HSV, I, I guess I'm convinced that all these drugs cause HSV. We, we looked at that with TOFA uh, a couple years ago and showed that uh, Jeff Curtis and I did a, a study together looking at that. Um, and that's been reported in some of the other Jack uh, inhibitors, but, uh, particularly those being used in uh, atopic dermatitis. But I, you know, there's not a lot of data with, with berries specific to HSV. I'd be keen on collecting it. I think HPV is an open question. You know, we haven't seen an increase in HPV-related cancers in any of these programs, um, you know, even up to, you know, several years of long-term follow-up. But of course, a lot of these people aren't necessarily at risk for older people with cervical cancer, maybe past that window of, of new HPV infection or something, or they've cleared their initial HPV infection. So I don't know. I think that's a, an area of, that would be ripe for an open study, you know, an, an investigator-initiated project looking at younger, particularly younger women um, who have HPV uh, and seeing how these drugs modulate that. Um, this may be more of an issue for some of the lupus trials to, to address. But, uh, but I think that's an open question. Uh, I, don't, I don't think we think it's a big problem right now based on the long-term malignancy data, but I don't know of a lot of, uh, or really any viral-based studies that have looked at that systematically. I, I just think it's something we should look at. Anifrolimab in lupus is coming. In, uh, I think it might be something worth looking at. So finally, any other take-home message? We know we've got to be same infection risk as any other advanced therapy, softer we, we recognize we've got to vaccinate, um, minimize steroid use, any, any other take-home message? Uh, yeah, I, I think you just nailed them. And, you know, vaccination uh, is key. I mean, we didn't talk about other vaccines, but uh, we did a study with uh, Barry and, you know, people responded well to PCV13 in the conjugate pneumax, or the conjugate uh, you know, pneumococcal vaccine or Prevnar it's called. Uh, and uh, they responded a little bit less favorably than tetanus, although there was pretty decent response. So, you know, I think it's important to remember right now we have flu season, which is coming up here. You're, you're coming out of it. And then uh, we have COVID coming uh, in terms of a vaccine. And we have Barry also being used against COVID, which, you know, you saw that there was some favorable data uh, in a press release about it you know, last week in terms of improving clinical uh, outcomes on top of remdesivir. So, so there's a lot to think about with Barry uh, in the next year with regards to viral infection, I think. Uh, so prevention of influenza, of course, key. And then uh, I think, you know, um, how uh, it may or may affect, may not affect uh, COVID outcomes, of course, is really of, of utmost interest. And there's a number of trials looking at that. So it's exciting times, I think. And I, I guess that's probably the last thing I'd say about Barry. Uh, just buckle up. It's exciting. We'll see. We'll see what happens in the next year. So thank you so much for your time, Kevin. This has been the CSF Author Interview Podcast. If you'd like to know more about this paper and others uploaded to the CSF website this month, you can get detailed slide sets available in the publication section at cytokinesignaling.com. Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from. And let's know what you think. We always appreciate a bit of feedback. Thanks so much, Kevin. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Peter. Take care down there. <laughs>